Brad, that was absolutely wonderful. As Justin said, there are a number of events going on today and one that you do not want to miss tonight. This evening at 6 o'clock, we have a rare opportunity to have two former Muslims who have come to faith in Christ. They've been going around to some of our district churches. They have a center in the Allegheny Center Alliance Church and sharing their story, how they've been converted to Christ through uh, unbelievable opportunities. And they're going to share that tonight, talk to us about some of the tenets of Islam and the Muslim belief, and allow us the opportunity to interact with them. Their names will not be mentioned tonight because they still are in the Middle East. And so we'd love to have you come back at 6 o'clock tonight for that. You ever listen to a sermon and then pick it apart? How many? No. Every once in a while, I'm sure we do that. I get comments every once in a while, one or two a week, about a particular message or what someone may have felt about that. We may not pick it apart, but we all at one point or the other at least analyze it what we've heard, how it was said, where we think it's going, what we think it did to us, what it may have said to us. Sometimes we hear a sermon and we talk about its power and maybe we talk about how it's moved us. Sometimes we'll listen to a sermon and recognize that it moved us in one way or the other or maybe didn't move us and we thought it would. But you listened to it and felt there was no connection either with the speaker or the message and you walked away just wondering what just took place. Sometimes we listen to a message and we recognize that it calls us to action of some kind and so we respond to that. We, we feel like when it's all said and done and I heard what I just heard, I need to respond. I need to go put money in a basket. I need to go put offering money in a well or whatever that may have been as we shared with you last Sunday morning and next week more specifically talk to you about that aspect from the book of Nehemiah. Sometimes we listen to a message and we recognize there are certain behaviors that I have been participating in that in light of what I have just heard, I need to stop. And sometimes there is a message that compels us to get into the Word of God and I want to read more than what I just heard this morning. Jason, a couple of weeks ago, caused me the very next day to want to read the entire book of 1 Thessalonians. <coughs> he opened my mind, I, he opened my thoughts, and I wanted to read it. Every sermon, every message should at some point or the other leave you with some response to that or some way of wanting to analyze what I just heard or what do I do with what I've just now done. I'm sure at one point or the other, all of us do that. This week we were at district conference and our district superintendent brought in a wonderful speaker, Ruth Barton, and she's written books that really compelled me last year when I was on break and especially when I was on my uh, sabbatical and books that really challenged my life. And then hearing her speak, there were things again that I wanted to address out of what I've just heard. And so at one point or the other, we all do that with sermons. But have you ever done that with a prayer? Have you ever analyzed a prayer? Now, sometimes we'll say, well, no, they're personal. Our conversations between a person in God, I'm not going to analyze what they say or how they say it, but if we're real honest, throughout the years, we've probably at some point or the other at least had some thoughts about what we have just heard someone pray or how they prayed. Prayers are all uniquely different. Some of us grew up in circles where prayers seemed pretty formal, almost as if they were reading them, no emotion behind them. Others, when you heard them pray, you felt like they touched heaven. If God didn't listen to that, he doesn't listen to anybody's prayer when you hear someone pray in a certain way. 
Sometimes prayers leave us cold. Sometimes people have little mini sermons in their prayers. You ever heard those? They, they, they just either, and pastors will do that. I've heard pastors wrap up their entire message in the closing prayer. I have probably done that. And you're listening to it say, oh yeah, that's what he meant by that. And others will, especially those noontime prayers or those mealtime prayers when a parent is praying for their children or praying for the food, they'll say, Lord, would you please help my children, who you know are sitting there, God, really understand what I've been trying to say to them for the last, you know, whatever that may be. And you include all the things you've wanted to say and you had your eyes closed so they're not looking at you and you're knowing you're talking to God, but you, don't, you hope they're going to hear what you've just said. I, I've heard prayers that give information to God. I grew up in circles where uh, guys would come up and they would take the offering and one guy would always give the offering prayer before they partook of it. It was always some guy and some pastor would sometimes choose him and some guys were very comfortable with that and others weren't. And they would pray and they would consciously be aware of what it is they're saying. Then every once in a while, God, would you please bless Mabel? She's in the uh, Butler Hospital in room 322, God. And I've heard him say, I'm wondering if God's in heaven going, Gabriel, did you get that? I wondered where she was. Sometimes we use them, if we're real honest, to make transitions in a service. Sometimes you feel like prayers could literally raise the dead. Kids' prayers fascinate me. I'm sure you've all heard them one time or the other or read them at some point, and maybe if you had your own children, I, I love how I know God listens, how they seem to touch heaven when they pray. There's a number of them you can read. I'm sure somebody sends you an email every once in a while of children's prayers. This one's, Dear God, please put another holiday between Christmas and Easter because there's nothing going on right now. <laughs> I'm sure you've heard this one. Dear God, thank you so much for the baby brother, but I really wanted a puppy. I never asked for anything before. You can look it up. God, I read the Bible. What does begat mean? I've asked a lot of people. No one tells me. Dear God, is it really true that my father won't get to heaven if he uses his golf words in the house? <laughs> God, I, I got to believe that it's really hard for you to love everybody in the whole world. There's only four people in my family, and I don't like some of them sometimes. Y'all know we're NASCAR fans. I mean, is that a surprise to any of you that I'm a blue-collar, redneck kind of guy? I know that surprises some of you because I look so structured and formal. <laughs> you can say what you want about NASCAR, but I'm telling you, their prayers are televised. There's no other sport. You don't see golf having the prayer before the golf game, although a lot of guys should pray before they do that. But on NASCAR, those prayers are televised, and the whole world sees them. I love listening to Joe Gibbs pray. Joe Gibbs is the owner of three of the race cars. He's a former coach of the Washington Redskins, a powerful man of God, written a number of books. And when Joe Gibbs prays, everybody listens. And he really does share the gospel. And there's not a soul in that audience that doesn't realize where he stands on his faith and what he believes in as he begins to pray. And they listen to that, and they understand it, and every once in a while, he'll bring, he brought up his little grandson one time who gave the prayer, and that little grandson was healed by God, and in front of that entire 153,000 people audience, that little boy gave testimony to God about what he had done. And so every once in a while, I listen to them, and I'm fascinated by what they allow on national TV and how some of these guys have the opportunity to pray in such profound and powerful ways. Up until four weeks ago, and then I heard a Baptist pastor 
pray at the beginning of a NASCAR event. And if you haven't heard it, I've got a 50-second clip of it for you this morning. you got to hear it to believe it. God every day for my smoking hot wife. But I would not, but I wouldn't say that in public. I mean, I sat there with my mouth open going, you've got, he couldn't have been independent Baptist, maybe Southern Baptist. But I'm telling you, he didn't ask or have been asked to do the invocation at any independent Southern Baptist convention from that point on. They'd never ask him to pray again. You want a great Bible study? Study the prayers of Scripture. Study the prayers of David. And you'll see more passion on a page of Scripture than probably you'll see anywhere. Study the prayers of Isaiah. Study the prayers of Jesus. Study the prayers of Paul. I love to study the prayers of Paul. This morning I want to take your Bibles out and turn again to the book of Nehemiah. We began a series last Sunday morning. You have sermon notes in your bulletin. I want you to take them out. Nehemiah, in just one chapter, is going to give us a clinic on prayer. Next Sunday morning, in two verses, he will give a clinic on work ethic and our attitude in work and about our work. This morning, he gives us a clinic on prayer. Last Sunday morning, we talked about this particular chapter and three aspects of what I think pop out on the pages of Nehemiah chapter 1. God's promise to the nation of Israel, the blessings of obedience, the pain of disobedience, and Nehemiah's response to the news that he had just received about what had taken place and how he responds to the bad news about what's going on in Israel at that time and where his countrymen stand. And notice now in these verses here that we read this morning in chapter 1, beginning at verse 2, how he responds and immediately who he turns to for help. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. He said to me, those who survived the exile are back in the providence. They're in great trouble and disgrace. The walls of Jerusalem are broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those he loves and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive, your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night. For your servants and for the people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. 
We acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed your commands, decrees, and the laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instructions you gave to your servant Moses, saying, if you're faithful, I'll scatter you. Unfaithful, you'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, and even if you're exiled, the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place that I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. They are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and by your mighty hand. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today. Grant him favor in the presence of this man. As you look at this particular section of Scripture this morning, you can't help but realize how many wonderful things Nehemiah teaches us in just those few short verses about prayer. All of our prayers are different. We, I recognize there is a difference between nighttime prayers or bedtime prayers with your children or prayers before a meal or prayers in the morning when you get up and prayers when you really hear bad news, when the doctor calls and he's not sure what needs to take place next but it doesn't look good or the police officer calls and says, I need you to come down to the station or someone shows up at your door and says, I need you to know that your children have been in an accident. There's a vast difference between those mealtime prayers or the bedtime prayers and those kinds of prayers, and I certainly understand that. But what I'm talking to you this morning about is the aspect of our prayer life and the essence of our prayer life that really does spend some time connecting with a living God. There's not a one of us in the room at one point or the other, and probably almost every day or at least every week have had some times where we know we need to spend some intimate time with God. It may not have been because you have received some bad news or the doctor called or a police officer showed up, but you recognize the circumstances around you, maybe in your own family, situations that are sometimes beyond your control or the state of our nation or certainly the state of our world. And my hope is, as we explore Nehemiah for these few moments this morning and then look at the last aspect of that that I think has to go together with prayer, you'll understand in your own prayer life maybe some elements that you want to include, need to include, or have already included in your own prayer life. What I want you to see here this morning is how he responds. When I, when I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and I fasted and I prayed before the God of heaven. What you can't help but notice in this particular section of Scripture is his posture and his intensity. So often I've heard people pray and I, I've known the situations they're in. There doesn't seem any emotion in it. It seems like words that they're repeating. They don't know how to express what's going on inside. And what I love about Nehemiah and this clinic that he gives us on prayer is that it's okay to tell God exactly how you feel. To get all of your emotions out on a table. To let him know the pain you're dealing with as if he can't handle it. To let him know how maybe angry you are, how uptight you are, how upset you are, how painful this circumstance is. God, I don't want to die. I don't want my children to go through this. My, my son or my daughter was raised in the faith. They were raised in church and now they're drifting so far away. God, I need you to know how it makes me feel, how painful it is when I see my child walk in another direction. And maybe you already pray that way, and I, I hope you do. That when you spend some intimate time with God, not your bedtime quick prayer with your children or maybe that mealtime prayer, but some quiet time with God, hopefully every day, that it's an opportunity for me to pour out my passions 
to the God of the universe who I really want to know how I feel. God saw Nehemiah. He knew what had taken place. He knew how he was going to respond. He knew what he was going to do. He knew what he was going to say. What I love about Nehemiah is he said it anyhow. He allowed God to see his emotions. He allowed God to hear his pain. He allowed God to hear his frustrations. He told God things that he already knew God knew. One of my favorite books that I've read for years and have read years ago is, and God changed his mind, and Brother Andrew, who wrote the book, talks about Corey ten Boone and circumstances in, in uh, Europe as the Holocaust was taking place and what took place after that and, and how she would every once in a while take her Bible out, open it up to a particular promise that she knew God had made, hold it up to heaven, and he would say, she would point to it and say, God, see, this is what you have written. But right now, I don't see the answer to this prayer. And she would tell God how she felt. What I love about Nehemiah, he holds no emotions back. Day and night, he prayed. Day and night, he fasted. If you've not gone through deep, deep waters in your emotional life, your spiritual life, your family life, you will. At one point or the other, you'll come to those moments in life where the first thing you want to do is pour out your heart to God. Don't ever make it the last resort. Well, I've tried everything else. I ought to pray. What I love about Nehemiah is his first response. I want to spend time with God. And not just a moment or a quick prayer or God help me or God save me. Lord, get my kids out of this mess. Please don't let this happen. I mean, I'm talking intensity and an obvious posture before the living God. Probably on his face. In so many contexts in the Old Testament, they were on their face before the living God. I'm not saying you have to do that at all. It's not always about the posture of my body. It is about the posture of my heart. But sometimes the posture of my body allows me the opportunity to relax and unwind and just sit in the presence of Almighty God. I pray when I'm driving. I'm not going to lay down when I'm driving. But those times when I'm really pouring out my heart with God, posture and how I spend with Him and what I spend with Him is, is incredibly important. You will also notice He doesn't do that classic little Christian phrase that we all use, let go and let God. Take it to God and leave it. Don't bring it back up again. That's a great Christian phrase. I don't know exactly where it's at in Scripture. But what I find in this context is what it says in verse 4. Look at what it says. For some what? Days I prayed. For some days I mourned. I sat down and wept. I, I prayed and I fasted before the God of heaven. Prayer isn't just about the word. It's about the emotions behind it. Fasting doesn't mean that I simply don't do anything for a moment or I give up something so that I can pick it up later or I give up candy or coffee or chocolate or whatever it is for Lent so that whenever Lent's over, I can pick it back up again. Fasting is saying, God, I want you to know how intense I feel about this circumstance and situation. For many people, it is giving up a meal and during that meal time, I spend that time that I would normally eat in prayer before God. It may be fasting from other things. I'm not going to watch as much television. I'm not going to watch any for a while. I'm not going to do this habit or, or hobby for a while. I'm going to give that up. I'm going to spend some time with God. I, I really need to either reconnect or share with him my emotions or my heart in this given situation. But it's not a simple let go and let God. And there are times we do need to do that. But it's not a simple let go and let God and walk away as if it doesn't affect us. It is a passionate pouring out my heart to the living God. 
Letting him know how I feel. Letting him know what I'm, what's going on in my life. And these concepts are very hard in our fast-paced, instant gratification age. But I'm telling you, some answers only come by prayer and fasting. By spending time with God and waiting on God. Jesus, one of the classic phrases, and I'm not sure if it's in your book this morning. Yes, it is in your sermon notes this morning. In regards to a particular healing, he said, some things come only by prayer and fasting. And he puts those two together. It's not just simply saying the words or spending some time making sure God knows and understands what I'm going through, but only by prayer and fasting, the intensity of that. And I'm not trying to prove something to God. God, I'll tell you, I'll make you a deal. If I miss four meals, will that be good enough? If it's an accounting of what I do, then you miss the point. It's an opportunity to spend more than a few moments that many of us at times spend with God in prayer. Or this issue is so big, so large, so enormous that I need to spend some quality time with you. And to do that, I need to spend quantity time. And to do quantity time, I may need to give up some other things. And like I said, in many cases, it is fasting. One of the spiritual disciplines is fasting. We don't practice it a lot. We don't talk about it much, but I'm telling you. As Jesus said, there are some things that only come by prayer and fasting where I spend some quality, intimate time with God. Look at how he starts in verse 5. He doesn't come to God flippantly. He comes with awe, respect, and reverence. Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant with love to those who love him and keep his commandments. I love how Jesus comes to God, dot, Daddy, Abba, Papa. And I love the balance all the way through Scripture of being able to come to him as my, my earthly father connecting that way and there's not a thing I'd ask my dad to do that I don't think he could actually pull off. Because that man can do anything. And so I come to God with that way saying, Papa, I need you in this situation. It's bigger than me. I don't know what to do. And there are times that that I come as Nehemiah does with unbelievable awe and reverence and respect for the power and majesty of the living God. Notice also in verse 6 his honesty. Let your ear be attentive, your eyes be open to hear what I'm saying. I love David and Psalms when he said, Lord, bend your ear down toward heaven. And then in that descriptive process, you almost can see God doing that. I am listening. I want you to know that. I do hear. He does bend his ear toward heaven or from heaven toward us. The prayer of your servant is praying day and night, people of Israel. And then this is what I see here this morning that I want to spend the last few moments with. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. What fascinates me about this prayer and the one that Moses shares in the book of uh, preceding this is how he includes himself. How he admits his own need and his own sin. Here's a man that I believe has a righteous relationship with the living God who knows the price of disobedience and the pain of disobedience that we talked about last Sunday morning. But when he talks about where his brothers are, he includes himself in that process. God, we've all sinned. I have sinned, I include myself, my father has sinned. So often, sometimes, I shouldn't say so often, but at times, I've heard Christians pray and I've heard them talk where where they tend to think they're better than the people they're praying for, at least at a different plane than the people they're praying for. 
Maybe when we're praying for our nation and we recognize the deplorable situation it's in and some of the decisions that have been made and some of the people that are leading us and, and we sometimes, if we're not careful, put ourselves as believers on a different plane and, and we pray different than them or we pray that almost as if we're separated from them and we don't do the things they've done. You go to jail, you're certainly not going to include yourself in that context about what those are around you or what they participated in. But what I love about Nehemiah, he said, I've sinned too. I'm no better than them. I'm pleading for you on their behalf as well. When you pray for this nation, we're very clearly heard to pray on so many occasions that verse out of 2 Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name, in every national prayer gathering or every time we think about praying for our nation and as we get closer to November and next year specifically in the national elections, we will as a people of God pray for this nation because it's in desperate straits. But as we do, I think it's important to remember what he says in Chronicles and how Nehemiah includes himself in this context. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways. Confession in your sermon notes is in the presence of God. Confession in the presence of God is a recognition of who he is, what I've done, what I need to do or cease doing, and what I ask God to do. The book of John, and you can write it down in your sermon notes this morning because you have a place to write and you can look it up later. It's some of the most classic verses and in the inclusion of confession and prayer that go together. It's in 1 John 1, 6 where John the author comes in and says, we saw him. We saw him with our very hands. We saw him with our very eyes. We touched him with our very hands. And I'm telling you, everything he says is true. We saw him with our very eyes. He's light. He is the truth. And in him there's no darkness at all. And if we claim to have fellowship with him or a relationship with him, there won't be any darkness in us. We won't continue in sin. We won't habitually sin. We will connect with God. We will find ourselves in a relationship with God that doesn't continually walk in the old patterns of behavior. It doesn't mean we will be perfect. It means in your sermon notes that I will agree with, God, with, with what God shines his light on. When I recognize that I come into the presence of Almighty God when I pray in his light of truth shines on me in some way or the other I will agree with that and so in this context of prayer seeking God's face what Nehemiah does is agree with what he already knows he has done and the Israelites have done God I know we have turned from the ways that you promised us or the ways you told us to go we we have not been obedient in your sight you told us if we do this and obey you we'll be blessed and if we don't obey we'll be cursed and now we're responding to that and we're there I agree with that I recognize that I have done it myself and he puts himself in the same capacity. What I love about the necessity of confession going along with prayer is that we're agreeing with what God has already shined his light on. And so that if I'm honest, in a few moments as we spend our times in preparing for communion, as Paul tells us to in Corinthians, and I'm allowing God to examine me and look deep inside, I will sense by his spirit there are things he's telling me to do that I need to quit doing. And whatever he shines his light on, I'll deal with. number of aspects that I just want to briefly, they're already in your notes this morning, but I want to make sure that you see uh, in the process of spending some time in prayer or spending some time in confession with prayer, you need to make sure at some point or the other you're in some form of community. 
small group that you really trust is one of the best. It has to be, though, a group that you really do trust. Everyone needs someone to have a place or somewhere to have a place where they can be honest, open, and vulnerable, but the advice is in your notes there this morning, and I encourage you to take it very seriously. Get into authentic community, but make sure that you're very careful and selective with who you open up to, how you can trust them, will they keep a confidence, and make sure they're not overwhelmed with your issue. I have a small group that I've been blessed with for the last two and a half years that I've shared more with them than uh, most people in, in ministry in a long time, and I've absolutely certain that what I've shared will stay there. And I trust you have found that person in your life or that place in your life or that group in your life where you really can be vulnerable and honest before them as well as before God. Because the process of community, I think, intricately ties together with the necessity of prayer and confession. And I trust you do practice regular confession and there's some uh, ingredients that I want to make sure that you include, self-examination that we'll spend some time just in a moment honest, genuine sorrow. Not flippant emotion, not manufactured emotion, but God, I really recognize that what I have done and what we are doing as a nation breaks the heart of God. Every single sin breaks the heart of God. And God, I don't want to continue in this. I want to stop. I'm tired of playing the game. I come to church and it looks good. Everybody thinks I'm okay. But you and I both know what I just did last night. What I watched last night. What I read last night. I don't want to keep doing this. a desire and determination to stop that sinful behavior, to be honest in your notes there, if you can write it down, to be very honest before God and very specific. What I have found so often, we don't sin generically. God, forgive all the sins that I may have done today. I'm not sure what they are. <laughs> yeah, you probably are. Be very, you don't sin generically, confess specifically. And God, I want to make sure that I'm not continuing in this pattern of behavior. I want to walk in holiness and purity because walking with you brings blessing and the pain of disobedience is overwhelming. My brothers are paying an enormous price. I identify with that. And I want to see us change. This morning we're going to spend some time in communion. Great way to finish a message on confession and prayer. We only have a few moments and we don't drag it out. We're very careful that we don't do that. But what I want us to do this morning as we take these elements is to do what Paul tells us to do in 1 Corinthians. There's a classic section of Scripture where he said the Lord Jesus, the night he was betrayed, took bread, and he blessed it and he broke it, and he said, this is my body broken for you. Communion stores if you'll come. He took the cup after supper, and he said, this is the cup of redemption. Every time you partake of these two, you have the opportunity to, to share that. And then he finishes with, a section that we don't always include in communion, and that is, but before you eat, before you drink, you ought to examine yourself. You ought to look deep inside because you're doing some things that you know and I know that you shouldn't be doing. And if you don't handle those things, I'll take care of them. If you don't deal with those issues, I will, God says. And so every time before communion, whether we say the words or not, we always want to make sure that you have the opportunity to just spend some time with God, looking inside, letting Him shine His light on that. And then dealing with whatever he says, and then in a moment or two, we'll lead you in partaking of the elements one or the other. So hold them till everybody is served, and then we'll all share them together. The alabaster jar that Brad sang about a moment ago is an unbelievable display of love and affection toward the living Christ. 
who gave his all for us. And what he's looking for now is honesty before him as we spend some time preparing for ourselves for communion and letting him hear what's going on in our lives and our heart and being honest before the living God.